Q Playback. Welcome back to Q Playback, the podcast looking at development of DIY recording, uh, starting in the Melbourne indie scene in the 90s and going through to today. Uh, I'm going to introduce my guest today, uh, Adam Casey. How are you, Adam? I'm good, thanks, Chris. Uh, now, as far as I can remember, we first crossed paths uh, via e- email, probably an right. email group. <laughs> I think it might have been an Australian musicians or indie musicians Yahoo. Oh, uh, yeah, right, that far back. Um, it, was, it was a long time ago. Um, I your your memory's better than mine. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was around 2006. Um, wow, yeah. Now, at, at, at that point, you had um, a project called the boy who spoke clouds yeah, right, yeah. is is that still an ongoing concern no no it's a that's a uh, a, a defunct project right. <laughs> and but at the same time it's uh it's something that i'm still engaged with on a level like it's people still contact me about it and yeah. i and i uh i do like anniversary posts and stuff like that on social mm-hmm. media for it and but yeah i don't I don't produce music under that name anymore. Yeah. yeah. And I think at that point you were looking for tour dates. Ah, yeah, right. And um, I had just set up a tour right through Canada and the top end yeah, of right. the eastern states uh, for my band at the time, uh, the Autumn Sales. Right. Um, our Music Victoria funding didn't come through. Thanks a lot, Music Victoria. <laughs> um, and and I couldn't justify the, yeah. ri- the risk on the tour. Yeah. But... I did have all this booking information. Yeah, right. And uh, I remember sending that through to you. Sending that through, yeah, right. There were so many people that were doing that at the time. Uh, I remember, I know the tour. Mm. So I ended up going to the US in 2000 and that year, I think. Oh, no, no, it was 2000, yeah, 2006. I went there. That was the first time I went there. And then it was 2000 and I went there again in 2009. Um, Mm -hmm. And the 2009 was much bigger than the 2006 one. Um, uh, But it was, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's a lot of work, um, and uh, especially the spread. When you start getting spreadsheets from people, though, with like with, with <laughs> uh, venue names and like people yeah. to contact, and that's when it all starts coming together. The it's, yeah, exactly. This, and, this booker likes these bands. You yeah, can talk about them. no, I've got to, I have to go back through <laughs> that now and figure out which one you sent me because I've got a whole heap of that stuff. I ended up amalgamating it all into a big master spreadsheet, but I uh, it's it'll be really out of date now. But I remember <laughs> um, I had a few. One of the there was one artist actually. Um, Chris Sutherland, who was in a uh, a band that I loved at the time called Fire with Fire, Fire uh, what are they called again? Uh, Fire on Fire, um, and he was also part of a few other um, uh, a band called Cerberus Shoal, who were a big post rock band in the nineties as well. And he was he had done he toured America, you know, uh, from top to bottom, and, you know, I don't know how many times, but many times, mm. and. His spreadsheet was ridiculous. <laughs> it was like literally about 40, 50 pages of uh, of uh, contacts and stuff like that, with with like um, uh, the names of bookers, but also little notes as to you know this one's a bit of a prick. Like yeah. <laughs> this person will actually speak to you. This one you need to really chase up. Like he literally had notes on like character notes yeah. on all the. <laughs> Any bookers listening to this, we obviously love you all. Otherwise, we wouldn't be engaging with you. <laughs> um, I did actually try to find um, that first uh, Boy Who Spoke Clouds um, CD today because oh, wow. uh, <laughs> I remember you sending me a copy and saying, thanks, I managed to get another couple of gigs because of you. Yeah, right. Um, but Contact I couldn't, list, yeah. I, I couldn't find it. I think uh, it's somewhere in boxes, Wow, wow. But, uh, no, there's not a, there's, uh, there was only, uh, it, back in the day uh, when that came out was when people were still buying CDs um, and it was a, a thing. Um, 
but it was there was 500 made and they and, and they're long gone so yeah. um uh, i've got one copy my mum has a copy and i have a copy i think that's the only two copies i know of well i'll <laughs> sell it back to you for 500. <laughs> <laughs> yeah there's a there's there's a, a few of my uh it's weird seeing uh, on discogs uh, this stuff does come up for like silly amounts of money sometimes yep. <laughs> um so we normally go through the charts of uh the year that i i met the guest I think this chart is probably almost completely irrelevant to the music circles that we've been in. But um, hmm. as a point of interest, number one on uh, the Australian album charts in 2006, Back to Bedlam by James Blunt. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, who, I've got to say, his Twitter account is much better than his music. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, no, I can't say I'm a big fan, but it's, uh, <laughs> you know, nothing against him. Number two, I'm Not Dead by Pink. Oh, yeah, okay. Uh, number three, Reach Out. That's the Motown album by Human Nature. Yeah, right. Uh, number four, self-titled album from Wolf Mother, everyone's favourite okay. Led yep. Zeppelin cover band. Yeah. And no, I remember them coming onto the scene at that time, and uh, and it was just yeah, it was it was almost a parody in a way, isn't it? It's just oh, so absolutely. similar. Yeah. Um, number five, The Winner's Journey by Damien Leith. Now, this brings up an interesting... I don't know who that is. Damien well, Leith. Well, well that's, that's the thing, Adam, that um, <laughs> Damien Leith was the winner of Australian Idol ah, that right. year. And I don't know if I should use the phrase cautionary tale, but an interesting tale in how the music industry is perceived that Damien Leith puts out this album after his one uh, Australian Idol, which is, you know, one of the most popular music shows on television yeah. in Australia. Um, and a year later, there's an article where he's saying, I'm going back to study uh, real estate. Oh, wow. Uh, because there's just no way for me to make a living uh, in Australia doing music, even when he's won one of the biggest... Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. No, that's a little bit scary, isn't it? Uh, and And... We could go into great depth about the kind of contracts and obligations that um, artists on those shows have to fulfil yeah, and yeah. and how little financial remuneration there is. Yeah. Um, but uh, if you want more interest, uh, more information, look that up and, um, uh, yeah, just remember to, to keep doing music because you'll love it. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, it's, one, it's one of those things, though. Like I, uh, um, I, remember, I watched an interview with uh, uh, Steve Albini, uh, who's one of my favourite music producers, uh, and he was talking about uh, longevity, uh, wh what longevity looks like, you know, in music. And he said, uh, and I agree with him, he's like, there are these people that become really big, flash in the can, and uh, mm. and everybody's excited about them. And they're doing it quite often, not doing it because uh, f for their own sort of, uh, you know, to fulfil their own resonant dreams around mm. uh, sounds and music and they're not necessarily expressing something that they want to express as much as expressing something that's trendy at the time. And he says without fail, they disappear very quickly mm. and the people that remain are the ones that are actually, you know, doing it for for themselves and actually trying to contribute something that means, that's meaningful. And they are the ones that stick around, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily mean it gets any easier for those people, but they're, in terms of longevity, it's, I think it's proven that uh, that if you're, if, you're, if you're following your actual, you know, your, your, your own dream and your own visions, it's, it, it's, mm. it, it, it inspires you to keep doing it. Whereas if you're doing it for other reasons, how, yeah. how, how long can you keep that up? Exactly. I'm sure there's a lot of, um, or have been a lot of blues artists that died dirt poor, yeah. but um, you know played music till their yeah, to the yeah to the very breath. end. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. But number nine on the Australian music charts in 2006 
um, boned by the twelfth man. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> so for for those unfamiliar with the twelfth man, it's um, I guess a comedy. Yeah, <laughs> let's call it comedy. Um, very Australian, very sort of blokey Australian humour. Um, I was I honestly thought that that kind of um, production had died out of Australian culture maybe, you know, 10 years before that. Yeah, yeah. No, it's still there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and the, the sports reference, you know. That's right. <laughs> yep. Uh, my dad always wanted me to be a famous cricketer or footballer, so he was very disappointed when I became a yeah. musician. Well, we're about this. We're about the my, my dad was a, a, a football uh, fanatic and still is, and uh, and it was similar. He was, we we have music in our family though, so I was encouraged to do it. But uh, that was definitely a strong push towards footy as well. <laughs> so, going on with those um, family beginnings, then, um, what are your first memories of making music um, or recording? Mm. What what came first? Or was it yeah. or was it interwoven? Yeah. So I, I yeah, I kind of uh, let the cat out of the bag with that last comment. That I had a, a very musical family. So um, my grandfather, who's one of my heroes, uh, uh, was part of the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra in the uh, in the nineteen forties uh, and fifties um, as a as a principal flautist. Uh, he also played the clarinet and the saxophone and played in various bands. Back then, the MSO was a much smaller deal than what it is now. Um, it was still, you know. Uh, a, 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 you know, a big enough deal that you had to be a very good player, obviously. But it was uh, now, you know, they make hundreds of thousands of dollars. Every musician, mm. in the, you know, like it's a it's a much more, um, you know, lauded sort of uh, uh, position to be in. Whereas my from my pa, it was more like you know he he was a very good player, and it was it was just he wanted to be in the best orchestra he could be in. Mm. It was sort of more like that. And uh, uh, but he also he started he was from Geelong and he started the Geelong Symphony Orchestra as well at the time that sort of disappeared but has now recently come back again. <laughs> um, but uh, so I had I had uh, and he my grandmother his wife uh, was a pianist a very uh, competent pianist as well and, te- and they were both teachers. Um, and my cousin was a concert pianist so t- two with wow. the world played played to the Royals even you know. Uh, uh, and uh, studied, um, did a master's in Australia looking at uh, French uh, uh, composition, looking at Ravel and Debussy mainly, and uh, I ended up... So I had all of that around me when I was a kid. I was going to say, is there any chance you weren't going to be yeah, yeah, yeah. music? <laughs> well, it was, you know, it was all classical stuff, though, so I, uh, my initial thing was, like, I don't like this, you know. It was like... A, and, and, and there's a part of me that's still... You know, like, it's interesting because I love classical music now, but... The process of making classical music is not something that I want any any yep. part of, um, because of the the you know I admire it the discipline and the rigor, but to me that's not what making music's about. So mm. and I I guess some part of me when I was little must have known that because I was like I watched uh, what they did um, uh, and you know they worked their asses off, but it was a very technical thing. You know it was less about self expression and more about you know being able to do something. Mm. You know. Um, I remember as I got a little bit older and started playing and I became interested in improvisation when I was a teenager, I remember asking my pa, who was, you know, you know as you could imagine, very competent player, but I remember asking, "Can you do you ever make things up on the flute? Mm. Very innocently. I wasn't asking because I was testing him. I was just like, I mm. wondered. And he's like, oh, not really. And then I said, oh, what What would you do? You know, and he was holding the flute at the time. And, he, and I remember, I always remember him just kind of like fumbling his way up and down a scale. Mm. <laughs> no, that's fascinating because I've worked with um, 
a someone who was in the Victorian Youth Orchestra. Yeah. Uh, Jocelyn, Jocelyn, if you're listening, um, and Jocelyn actually played in the Autumn Sales, which was about yep, the time right. we sort of crossed over. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but very similar. That um, found improvisation very hard. Yeah. But if I'd written a part, yeah. That would be the basis, yeah. and there'd be a little bit of flourish yeah, yeah. moving through it. Yeah. Um, but it was interesting to see, because uh, I, I would say that I was most inspired by sort of punk and post-punk, right? Where, yeah. where music is what you what you create, so yeah. whatever it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then working with someone who's always come from the other discipline. Yeah, yeah, that's trying right. Trying to mesh those worlds. Well, yeah, It's almost yeah. what you're talking about in your Yeah, yeah absolutely. Well, so. that was sort of a... I, initially, I ended up, you know, I've, I've worked with lots of people from uh, that world as well over time um, in a... Uh, in a in a composition capacity, but also as a product as a producer, and I've you know I know how to work with people and how to get the most out of them. But the thing I've learnt is that um, you know I probably aren't going to ask a classical musician to improvise a part. I'm going to be like, where's the score? You know, like yeah. uh, let's have a look at the score. Uh, whereas you know you've got to know how to get the best out of everybody. You know, and and, and recognize that everybody's got something different to bring, and so you've got to you can't you know. You can't squeeze water out of paper, you know. Yeah. Like it's, <laughs> you just gotta, you gotta like sort of work with what's in front of you. But I, yeah. So that was a, that was sort of an interesting moment for me of differentiation, where I was like, oh, he really doesn't really know how to do this. Mm. And uh, and already I was, uh, I, I, at the time I was learning guitar, but I was already like having fun just testing things and like trying things mm. and learning a song, but like doing something different with it. And uh, uh, so I, I was recognizing, I guess, my own one of my own skills or burgeoning skills at the time and now you know like a, in terms of what I'm good at as a musician I'd say improvisation is one of the you know mm. one of the principal things that I, if someone said to me what are you really good at I'd say probably improvisation's mm. right up there you know so and, and as a yeah. producer that's something that's really important that you're trying to bring something new yeah. to uh, someone else's piece, yeah, yeah. Or inspire them to find it. I come up, yeah. Look, I, I as a producer, I'm, I come up. I, so I, I play, and I'm sure it's similar for you. I play a lot of instruments and uh, on people's records. It's amazing. There's plenty of records out there that where I'm literally the entire band. Like uh, I'm, I'm doing Shadow <laughs> industry secrets. <laughs> no, that's right. So it's uh, it sounds like a band, but it's actually just you know like if you had a camera, it'd be like about eight me's in the background uh, and a singer up the front. Um, uh, doing their thing, but it's uh, so I've uh, yeah, and you're right, like yeah, in those moments, um, you've got to you know, like they, they come in and they've got material, and I have to just come up with stuff, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. um, and it's and, and they're on the clock, and I'm like, you, you, you don't want to waste their time, and exactly. but I'm, I'm yeah. confident enough that I'm uh, I've got to get a sense of their aesthetic, you know, I've got to be you know, uh, so I can know where I'm sort of moving, but once I've once I've sort of uh, Normally a little bit of a, you know, nah, nah, that's no good. Oh, yeah, no, I like that though. And it's a bit of that going on. And then eventually you're sort of like, yeah, no, I think I've got this yeah. now. And then you put a part down and and, uh, and then the rest sort of starts flowing from that. But, yeah, it, it definitely starts with improvisation yep. though. So, yeah, no, I love I love that uh, that that way of thinking about music um, and uh, that exploratory approach and, mm. and just the, uh, and I think as a young person, just the excitement around not knowing what's going to happen, you know, and... Uh, uh, and then when it happens, you're like sometimes quite blown away. You know, yeah. you're like, wow, yeah. like what just happened? That was like you were just, you know, transported. Um, and that's something I think I've always, you know, still that's kind of what I seek. It's like that, yeah, that trans- moment, moment of creation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and just being transported out of the, uh, you know, the, the human vessel and into, you know, the spirit realm in some way. <laughs> I, I've um, often said to some of my more trained uh, musician friends that 
I don't know if it's a failing or just how I operate. And mm. it's probably similar for you as a producer, but um, I, I don't see myself as a virtuoso on any yeah. particular instrument. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm fairly good at finding what needs to happen for a song. Yeah. But if you're doing a session, you might, as you, you've said, like you might go through a part three or four times, get what you need. Yeah. And then I'll pretty much instantly forget yeah, 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 yeah. what I've played. No, no, I'm, I'm, um, the, I'm the same as well because I'm because because then you know I might do that five six times in a week. That's you know, right. so yeah. you know why are you gonna, you're not going to. And then and then the interesting thing for me, which may have happened to you, is sometimes the artists uh, want to launch the album there and they and they I ask me to, to play. Yeah, they yeah. ask me to play, and I'm like, oh dear, I'm gonna have to <laughs> I'm gonna have to actually learn how to play what I wrote yeah. um, and rem and memorize it. And that's a that's a that can be a bit of a challenge as well. Yeah. Sometimes it's a real challenge. I'm like, God, why did I do that? That's hard. <laughs> that's because. Because I only had to do it once, I'm like, you know, uh, but having to do it over and over again is a different, a different story. But yeah, no, it's interesting that that uh, sort of, you know, wrangling, wrangling out parts for different people, and, and how it sort of seeps in and then disappears. Mm. And you're just like, it's just all about flow when you're in the studio, I think, and just yeah. trying to get get to the uh, the other side in the way. And you're you're not necessarily thinking about, you know, like this is what I have to play every day for the next yeah. <laughs> three months yeah. on tour or whatever. Um. So you started out on guitar. Yeah, I did, yeah. Yeah, I, uh, gosh, I would have been about, I got guitar lessons from maybe the age of about 11 or 12 or something yep. like that. Um, hated it. <laughs> uh, so the th same thing I was talking to you about. I had a family, uh, so there, it was an obligation. They were like, "You've got to learn an instrument," mm. and uh, I'm like, well, "I don't want to." And they're like, "Well, you're gonna." You know, it was kind of a, it was just a thing. And I'm thank very thankful for it now, obviously. But at the time, I remember being like quite reticent about it. And yeah, uh, and the, and the guitar, the teacher that I had was, uh, you know, a classical guitar teacher, mm -hmm. and had to have the little a foot stand, and you know, hold oh, my, wow. you know, hold so, my, uh, cock my wrist um, on the, yep. you know, right wrist. And like and and uh, was learning Bach and like all this stuff that, and I just didn't want to play it. And I was like, and so I wasn't practicing. And I was like turning up each week, and she was continually disappointed in me. And it was not a great experience. <laughs> uh, and then and then you know I, got, I went to the next guitar teacher and the next guitar teacher and uh, was not happy. And then finally uh, they uh, I was about thirteen, and they uh, they they uh, sent me to a guitar teacher. It was probably a very bad guitar teacher, right? But he was perfect for me. Uh, he was a bit of a stoner, yep. like, and uh, you know, basically what he wanted to do was jam. Yep. Um, and he was like, so he would try and teach me, you know, like a Jimi Hendrix riff or something like that, and be like, you know, t competent hey. enough that I could repeat it over and over again, so we could just yeah. practice his solos over the top of hey, it. Hey, kid, how old are you? You got any weed? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was almost that. Yeah. yeah. So, but he was basically yeah. using me as a, you know, as a as a rhythm guitarist, so we could practice his solos. So, <laughs> I uh, and then once I got it, he's like, yeah, that's it, that's it, and then he'd just start soloing over the top of it. And we'd spend so our, we'd spend thirty minutes in there, and I'd just be like playing a part, and he'd be soloing, he wouldn't talk, and I was. And, and, and but the thing is, I learned an enormous yeah. amount. Like I was, it was all I wasn't learning through traditional teaching. I was learning through watching and and I and then I remember getting to the point where I'm like, I, I, I asking him, other than him sort of saying to me, you know, do you want to learn how to do this? I was the one that was like, how do you do these solo things? You know, <laughs> like so. And then he started teaching me scales and you know maybe maybe it was some grandmaster plan that he had, but yeah. I, I'm not you sure. Have to find the right point of inspiration <laughs> for the hard work. And then I I started doing soloing and learning, and that's where the improvisation really started coming out because that's what you know like, it's not it's not just about playing scales it's about you know applying them and finding you know what works and suddenly I was we were like bouncing between playing solos and he would go to the rhythm and and then that that was a big turning point for me and then, nice. and then suddenly I was uh 
going home practicing um and 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 i started recording things onto tape so i was uh i was filling up cassettes with uh uh, putting down rhythm parts so I could like do solos over the top of them. And so paint us the paint us the visual picture. Is this like a standalone cassette player? Or yeah, yeah. Where, I, where are we up to? Uh, yeah, yeah. No, it was just a. I think it was like a little boombox, little mm-hmm. Sony boombox yep. type thing that had an internal microphone in yep. it, and you just hit record, and it just captured whatever you were doing. You know, it wasn't. It was that. It was. It was. You know, I think. Uh, you know, good enough that I could just solo over it. That's all I really wanted. You know, mm. I just wanted to put down parts so I could practice over the top of without needing another guitarist. So, yeah. um, and start learning. I didn't even know really. Uh, I was, you know, basically learning my basic major and minor scales, but and pentatonic sort of stuff, and and just figuring out how to, you know, what like uh, finding a, a, a guitar part that I liked that was usually from another song that I liked, mm. and being like, okay, and then I had to figure out what key is this in and I was doing it just by literally you know I had no idea what I was doing I was just like you know like moving my fingers up and down the fretboard until oh that note sounds right and you know (laughs) very familiar yeah I had no idea what I was doing really whereas now you know it would be very different I'd be you know sort of uh before I even played a note I'd be just trying to figure out what key it was in and Mm. uh but it's you know that's the that's the that's the way it you know when you're starting off it's just you just figure it out as you go you know and you and, and don't so know any what, better what would you have been listening to at that age what would have been your yeah I was, I, so I was just when i first started listening to uh uh, uh doing guitar lessons i really like in excess yep i was uh really uh, into that kick album mm-hmm. uh i remember wanting to learn guns in the sky <laughs> oh, yeah. yep. which is just down down down, down. <laughs> just two chords. Yeah. How, how long did that take? <laughs> well, the funny thing was that I didn't, you know, I, it's, it's just the thing, the mystery of playing an instrument. Like, you, you know, you, you're learning. Like, I, I, I couldn't understand what they were doing. They were just they were just two power chords, but I didn't even know what a power chord was back yeah. then. So I was just, like, playing, you know, like, folk chords, basically, like open C major chords and G major chords, and I just didn't, I didn't quite understand. And I had an acoustic guitar, not an electric so I didn't really quite understand what overdrive and distortion was. So I'm like, I just in my yeah. head, I'm like, how are they doing that? Like, yep. it's just a, you know, just completely clueless about it. And then, uh, so I didn't really, I was sort of like, I want to be able to do that, but I don't really know how to do it because it's not, you know, a sound that I knew how to make, you mm. know, and it wasn't really until I started, you know, and, and so the re- one of the things about uh, recording to tape was my, my uh, I wanted to get an electric guitar and an amp and, uh, I wanted my mum and dad to buy it for me because <laughs> um, uh, I was, you know, just a, a young teenager. And uh, I, they said, you've got to fill up a tape, a cassette tape full of songs, you know, before we'll do it. So uh, that's where I started. You nice know. work, mum and dad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and it worked. And I filled it up and uh, and then uh, and, and, uh, and, and, and with, with some elongated uh, improvisations to fill the tape up. <laughs> uh, and, uh, yeah, eventually, you know, got the electric guitar and then started, you know, and by then I was starting to really get into all the metal stuff. So mm. my, my first band was a metal band and I was, like, right into it. So... It was kind of began with like Metallica and you know yep. and hard rock stuff like Guns and Roses and that type of thing, which a lot of uh, boys mm. in the uh, in the uh, that was kind of like uh, I guess early nineties, you know, yep. um, and that's what 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 a lot of boys were listening to, um, and then um, but then it it got more and more extreme. <laughs> started getting into the death metal stuff, started getting in, and then like eventually started getting into a lot of the Scandinavian black metal stuff yep. and. Uh, and the band I was in, uh, uh, we did a demo in 93 at Pan Studios in Geelong. 
That was my mm. first sort of experience of recording, yep. which was a pretty dismal experience, actually. <laughs> <laughs> it was, uh, it was not, it didn't sound how I wanted it to sound, you yep. know. Um, but they also had no idea what black metal was, you know, so they didn't really know what to do. And but I didn't, know, we didn't really know how to translate it to them either. So it was just a, you know, one of those situations where no one knows what they're doing, you know. But um, we did a demo still and managed, and it got played on community radio and stuff nice. back in the day, which is pretty hilarious. We'll yeah, um, have to dig some up so we can put it in. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, I did a I did an <laughs> Instagram post with a little like a. Uh, I don't know, 15 second little sort of snippet of something like a little while ago. And I got a lot of people like saying, oh my God, what the <laughs> hell? Like, because they didn't realize I did, you know, it's pretty, it's like, it's nasty, like blast beats and screaming yeah. and all that sort of stuff. So, <laughs> but that was my, yeah, that was sort of the, I, I'd, done, I'd done a little bit of four track recording before that as well. Um, it wasn't my four track, someone else had a four track. And I remember being playing with it and in the rehearsal room and, mm. and, uh, and we we're trying to sort of, pull things together and and uh it was back then it was a real mystery and a real uh you know how do you get a, a good sound was yep. you know much more mysterious than it is now you know um so between then and uh when you put out a press release talking about recording a whole album with uh <laughs> a video camera yeah. microphone yeah. What, what was the yeah, yeah. The timeline of recording development. Oh, uh, uh, totally. And I saw a lot happened in that time. There was a, So I was in a band before the Boreas Spoke Clouds. I was in a band called Seascapes of the Interior. Oh, of course. Yeah. Um, and that, uh, we recorded an album, uh, and we that was the right in the, the forefront of where digital recording was starting to happen, become more available, I guess. It was mm. happening, but it was becoming more available, and we used um, a really early version of Logic, which was called... Uh, it was called something slightly different back then, Logic Pro or something like that. It had a different, yeah. slightly different name, and it like wasn't. Uh, it was owned by someone else, I think, as well back and then. Cubase started out as Cubasis. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's a, and well, I was also for the Boys Book Clouds. I was using Cool Edit. I don't know if you remember Cool Edit. So that's <laughs> yeah. that's how I made the, the Boys Book Clouds album. That came later. But the Seascapes uh, of the Interior album we made using yeah this Logic uh, program and. Uh, and I think it was a like a PreSonus. Yep. You know, like eight channel, like. Uh, little preamp sort of thing that was, uh, you know, pretty... It was, it, was, it was exciting at the time. And, mm. uh, and we, we, uh, we, yeah, we sort of started piecing it together uh, ourselves. And we had a, our drummer was a sound engineer as well. So I was learning. I wasn't the... Uh, I was just playing guitar in that band, but I was learning and kind of co-produced in a way. Mm. I was like sort of always in there because I, I had very strong ideas about how I wanted things to sound, but I didn't yeah. know how to do it. Um, and so we, we sculpted together an album called All Safe, All Well, which, you know, did really well. Got, like, reviewed back then. Again, it was an era where uh, it was the early noughties and, uh, and uh, the internet was a thing, but it was uh, much more esoteric. Um, mm. And there was... Uh, there was It was more about sending your music to magazines and radio. And, uh, yeah. and we, got, we got played all over the world, got you know, published in magazines all over the world, like it was a, something happened, you know, and it was exciting at the time. Um, and we got it reviewed really well, and it was kind of like a post-rock type thing, mm. like instrumental, largely instrumental, but the way that band started was just, um, we didn't know what post-rock was, we just were a bunch of people that came together and, and, and got into playing long-form music, so... Mm. 
turning all the lights off. We had a, 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 um, a member in the band who was a visual artist and he used to project art in the room. And we used, to, we used to just sit in there and for four hours straight and not really stop mm. with, uh, with projections. Maybe a, a, a little bit of marijuana might have been involved as well. <laughs> um, and then, uh, and so we, that's how we started and that band developed and became what it was out of that. And then and later on, you know, now if you look up Seascapes in the Interior on the internet and you just see post-rock references everywhere. So we ended mm. up being called that, but we didn't really know what we yeah. were making. We just thought it was, you know, something new. Um, and that's often what happens when a scene is beginning. Yeah. Um, that the people in it are... They just love making music. Yeah, and all the artifice comes well, it afterwards. Just, it happened to be. It happened at a time when we were, that band started. It was when there was a real explosion in that sort of instrumental music. Mm. Uh, it was just. It was more exploding in America, in the US, uh, with bands like Tortoise, and um, um, there was some other uh, bands like the Rachels were sort of. And, there was, and we were we were listening to that sort of stuff, but we didn't really know. The, the term post-rock, though, still hadn't really taken off. And then later on, now, it's more of a thing that people often talk about it later on, where they're like, oh, that post-rock stuff. And then, you know, there was bands like Mogwai and, and uh, Godspeed You, Black Emperor and Sigur Ross are the ones yeah. that really, they're the ones that really kind of became a big... But by the mm. time those bands were making records, we were, we'd been around for six, seven years. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, and then, but we loved all that stuff. Mm. Um, but it wasn't what sort of got us, you know, we were more into, you know, like, uh, like we really loved Disintegration by The Cure and we liked all yep. this uh, shoegaze stuff like My Bloody Valentine and Swerve Driver and, um, you know, The Pale Saints and Ride and all this sort of British, mm. you know, uh, uh, wall of noise sort of guitar, epic guitar stuff was kind of what, what we were into. We were doing that sort of stuff but in a long form without without singing. Did, did The Pale Saints do more than one album? They did. A, I think they might have done... Two or three, yeah. But there was, there was. Uh, I loved that first album. Yeah, yeah, that was the one that we uh, we really liked yeah. as well. Yeah, which uh, I've forgotten the name of it now. It's been too long. Mm. I know it's got like really pretty colours, kaleidoscopic colours on it. But um, it's a, uh, it's a, uh, yeah. There was, the, it was just that. You know, I think what was exciting to us was that uh, it, it was the sa- the sound of guitars didn't sound like traditionally what we thought guitars yeah. sound, could sound yeah. like and. Uh, it was uh, it was delays and reverbs and 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 using fuzzes um, uh, usually before you know so they're going into reverbs and then you know which was changing the timbre of the mm. the sound and it was just it was just a, it was very atmospheric and epic you know sort of stuff and coming from metal where I was really into the epiphany of metal um, and then and and then uh, uh, as I sort of grew older moving away from you know the wank of that yeah, <laughs> and yeah. wanting them but but still holding on to that you know that sort of uh, that epic quality of you know how how intense music can be and I think that's where all the shoegaze stuff picked up picked me up from yeah it's an interesting, interesting development because you'd say that with a lot of metal there's still a lot of ego and there's a lot of uh, masculine tribalism yeah yeah sure whereas yeah. um yeah, a lot of Indian shoegaze. It's almost post ego. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's trying to and, and and celebrating the feminine, even with yeah. men, even and and at a time that it wasn't sort of uh, really you know associated with any kind of queer culture either. It was just an expression of femininity, um, but from the male a lot, still quite male centered music. There was some. Uh, there were there were uh, female females that were in the bands, but it was definitely more. I would still say male centric scene, but mm. it was an expression of something feminine which was you know the interesting thing though for me with metal is that i, ha- I always hated the masculine sort of tropes yeah. around it and i was much more interested in atmospheric sort of uh 
uh, metal stuff, you know, which is where I, you know, interestingly, the, where, why I went to the black metal stuff because it was, you know, they were using uh, organs and keyboards and right. female yep. singing and, and I was also referencing, you know, the occult and nature, the elements and all these, you know, things that were, that weren't, you know, it wasn't like, you know, like you'd have a band like Cannibal Corpse singing about killing people and raping people. And then on the other side, you have a band like, uh, you know, like Emperor from Norway that are singing about forests and, mm. and, uh, and, and kind of esoteric, uh, uh, things that were much more, and that was much more interesting to me. You know, the 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 mysterious side of it, yeah, rather than the. Yeah. I, I was never into the bludgeoning sort of stuff, really, which was hard because the the metal scene was yeah was kind of centered around that death metal yeah, like. Yeah. And I, and when people will find out that I was like you know getting into the Scandinavian stuff at the time, I was looked at quite you know poorly by some people who are mm. kind of like, oh, you're into that atmospheric crap, are you? Yeah. And I'm like, yep. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, which led me, you know, again, like that's you can I can see how clear. At the time, I wouldn't have never known, but now I can sort of see that led into the shoegaze, more atmospheric stuff. And, mm. and I've always kind of, you know, still the music I make now is, uh, well, you know, I, I write music for theatre and and I do cinema scores and, you know, like it's, I kind of have continued making work that's sort of very visual and, and uh, soundtracky mm. and cinematic in nature and, and uh, almost sort of storytelling music that doesn't need words, you know, like I'm still doing a lot of that stuff and attracted to that, but it's coming from a different place than metal and shoegaze these yeah, days. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so between... Um... That, was, that was very non-linear. I think I just went all over the place. <laughs> no, just no. <laughs> no, I love it. Um, yeah, so so you record one album with just a, a video camera mic. Yeah, yeah, that was and, the Boys by Cloud's first and album. Now, like, yeah. now you end up at a point where um, you've got a very nice studio set up. Yeah. Um, be fairly fairly safe to say audiophile yeah. obsessed yeah 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 for sure yeah 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 so i've been so the i, I run yeah I run a studio called the true vine it started that in 2012 what, what's the story behind the name because yeah. i've always loved it but i've never known this yeah 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 it's a, it's a strange story <laughs> it's a really weird one that i've never said out loud before to uh, outside of the confines of but i i guess i'll let the cat out of the bag cuz it's a, it's a strange one though it's uh so so the yeah the true vine i started in 2012 before that though i was i was recording stuff uh, but I was doing lots of freebies and yeah. and uh, learning my craft really. But uh, like not every producer, yeah, right? yeah, you know, and doing. But it got to the point where I was like, I'm doing this too often, and people are asking me too often. Yeah, that I'm like. I really probably should charge some money for this. So I started charging the 2012. I think my, I, was, I was charging thirty dollars an hour, and I thought that I'd, I thought I'd yeah I thought I was gonna <laughs> I thought I thought everybody would stop working with me as well because I was working with a number of people by then. Yeah. Um. And uh, I thought, oh, this is this could be the end of me. We'll see what happens. And <laughs> amazingly, uh, everybody were like, no, you should be paid. And then suddenly more clients came, and it was weird. It was almost like the moment I started charging, uh, more people became interested yeah. in working with me. It was very. I guess I wasn't an amateur anymore. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, yeah, so the True Vine, um, at the time uh, when I was uh, coming up with the name, I knew I, knew, I, I was looking for a name. I knew I wanted to start the business. Originally, it was going to be potentially a record label as well. Like, I wasn't sure exactly what it was going to be, but um, I knew it was going to be some sort of music production type thing. Um, and uh, I was trying to figure out a name. Couldn't I was Nothing was sticking. Um, and then I had this crazy dream um, uh, that... Uh, and it involved Jesus in it. <laughs> I'm not a religious person, but it, uh, it, uh, in the dream I had, there was, uh, there was, uh, it wasn't like a vision of Christ. It was just like Christ was just in the room with me, like a regular person. But there was, uh, there was two of them, and they were on either side of me. 
uh, and they were talking to me and I couldn't understand what either of them was saying because they were talking over the top of each other. Um, so it was like these split dual Jesus, Jesus, Jesuses <laughs> in the corners talking to me and then they, they started getting closer and closer into my ear and they were whispering into my ear um, and what they were whispering was, uh, I am the true vine. Uh, and they were over and over and over and over again to the point of um, like that thing where you, it was a quite awful feeling where it was like, oh my God, like broke up and got a fright, you know. Uh, uh, and then but the name stuck in my, I was like, I am the true vine. Like what? The, and then I, I, uh, I, I literally woke up, wrote it down on a piece of paper next to the bed and went back to sleep. Um, and forgot about it, believe it or not, right? <laughs> so I just didn't even remember it because, you, you know, what dreams are like. Mm. And I, I forgot that I'd even written it down. Uh, but then, no, the, then the weird things. So this is back in the days of uh, where we were using iPods to listen to music more yep. than phones. And I remember I, I had it, but I had, uh, I was so excited that a 32 gigabyte iPod and I thought, <laughs> I was just amazed that I could put all this music on it. And I had, and I loved the shuffle mode. It was back then, that was just such a trip to be able to, sh like, you, used to, you could shuffle five CDs, but like shuffling, yeah. you know, a hundred <laughs> artists. Like, I was just like blown away by how um, unreal that was. So I remember on, I had a, a, a big, massive shuffle going. And anyway, there's a, a classical Estonian composer I really like called Arvo Pert. Um, and he uh, he is a religious uh, uh, composer. Uh, and one of his pieces came on. And it was called I Am the True Vine. <laughs> I'm wow. not joking. <laughs> that morning. Uh, so I'd had breakfast, da -da -da, put on my iPod on shuffle, and that came on. And I'm like, oh, what's this? This is beautiful. And then, and then I had that very, very strange jolting moment of remembering mm. my dream and, and going, what is going on right now? It was meant to be. Yeah, very <laughs> weird. And then and then I was like, uh, so at first I thought I was going to call it I Am The True Vine, but then I'm like, that's way too long and pretentious. <laughs> 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 and so it became The True Vine. But then, you know, the, then I started thinking about I started looking it up and I realised it was a religious thing, you know, like there was there was organisations called The True Vine in the US that are kind of, uh, you know, like uh, like um, Jesus camps, you know, like doing the... And, and it was just a a thing that I had no idea about and I, and I wondered whether I should use it. I'm like, are people going to think that I'm a Christian music label or recording studio, which I didn't really want people to think. But then I was like, no, do you know what? The way I ended up sort of conceiving of it was and going with it was I thought of it more as a, of a, as a metaphor for community. Mm. So uh, uh, you put out... And, and, and also the truth and resonance of good music and, and mm. real real expression uh, being like the true vine, yeah, like you know, that. like... And sending it out, sending out that truth and resonance out into the community and then uh, feeding, you know, feeding out and then having it feed back in and sort of this organic process of in and out. Uh, mm. Uh, and 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 built, but built around truth and resonance. And so I'm I'm one of these producers that I don't work with anybody. I uh, I, I kind of do a bit of an. It's a. I work, I work with artists that I um, sometimes will go and see and I'll be like, you're amazing, we should do yep. something together. A lot of that happens. But also, there are, I do get people that contact me and I'm like, I don't think this is going to work, you know, because yep. it's just not uh, speaking to me and it's nothing to do, to do with their music. Just I just know that I'm not going to give my best. Uh, mm. I'm somebody that uh, works uh, at my best when I'm fully, you know, with the person. And I'm mm. like, I want, yep. I want to make this with you, you know. Um, and... I've been lucky enough, not a very good business model, I'll say, but um, <laughs> but I've been lucky enough that it's never stopped, you know, mm. since 2012. In fact, it's since 2012 to now, we've had over 100 things released, you know, like yeah, that's brilliant. Cannot believe that. Mm. <laughs> that's how, I would never have guessed, you know, that, yeah. we'd, uh, that I'd still be sort of doing it with uh, that many things under my belt now. So it's, uh, and yeah, it's just grown and grown and it started off pretty. Uh, pretty simple mm -hmm. uh and it's gradually you know you know now we're 
you know, I've tracked everything up, you know, the biggest, I've tracked like 50 piece choirs and uh, I've done like mariachi bands and like, you know, like 13, 14 piece, you know, uh, big bands and stuff like that. And I've also done, you know, your three piece, you know, sort of rock bands and uh, and some metal stuff and I've done jazz stuff. I've done, you know, people say, what genre do you do? I do, this is the thing, I'm, I, I, I'm not, um, I'm not a generic listener i'm somebody that listens to just everything i yeah. love music yeah. and uh so it can be just about the style doesn't uh, worry me it's again it's that resonant factor it's like am i am i resonating with it and can i see that you the artist are resonating mm. with the work and is this a real is this is this true self-expression and uh that's my that's all i'm looking for and then that's like and which is very simple in a way um and then and, and if it is uh, i'm just like yeah let's do something like and uh, mm. and i'll invite them over usually uh, it starts with just me inviting them over just to hang out and yep. uh, and, and show them the space because we're not a typical studio as well i run out of my house um it's a, a different vibe. Um, Nothing wrong with running out of your house. No, 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 no. <laughs> no I know. Well, I, uh, at that time, 2012, you know, it's when I started. It was starting to happen, but it's definitely mm. now. It's everywhere. Like, everybody seems to have a studio in their house. But I guess my studio is a little bit more than a studio in the house in that, you know, we've got the capacity to, you know, we've got 64 channels in and out and, mm, you yeah. know, got an enormous mic locker and we've got, you know, a lot of great gear and it's just a, it's a bit more. And we've got enormous amount of instruments as well like mm. i've collected instruments all my life so we've got you know we've got like a like big timpani drums and like organs and you know hammered dulcimers and hurdy gurdies and, and all these can like you crazy play them all them? <laughs> I, I can i'm similar to you i can play them to a, to a yeah. certain level i'm not i'm not so you were talking about that virtuoso thing before and i thought that was really interesting in that i don't think any producer is a virtuoso at something like it's just not what producers do like mm. uh, if they were they probably wouldn't be a very good producer because they'd mm. be like you know if they're a virtuoso violinist then they're going to be probably saying you know what would be good here some really fast crazy violin really? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> whereas we're more like you know, thinking about the we're serving the song, and that's uh, and mm. and it's it's more. So for me, when I uh, I, I played guitar, um, but I, I I've learnt bass and drums more yep. as a producer. I, was, I, I dabbled in that stuff, but as a producer, I've got really quite uh, in the pocket with that sort of stuff now, and I've got very good at playing those things. And it's, it's a funny thing, isn't it? Because yeah. uh, similarly with drums, like I, I took up drums because I wanted to be able to produce. Yeah. And people say, are you a drummer? And I'm like, I'm not really a drummer. Yeah. And I was like, but you played on this album. Yeah. You played on that yeah, album. Yeah, yeah, exactly, like, yeah. <laughs> I was like, uh, no, but I can yeah. still tell the difference between myself and a drummer. Yeah, 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 <laughs> so. sure. Yeah, look, I'm, I'm somebody, I, I work with drummers as well, and I love, my favourite thing, my absolute favourite thing to record, is, by the way, is a drum kit. I love, mm. never, ever stop getting excited, and I've done it so many times now, but that moment where you're sort of setting up, you know, Usually, you know, ten plus marks on a on a drum kit, and yeah. you're sort of, you know, spending probably an hour or two just getting it all sort of set up and sorted, and get your basic levels checked. But just that moment where you, you know, you turn off the mute and hear that hear it all coming back in the yeah. control room. Yeah. Still to this day, I get I get like, oh yeah, like little chills yeah. and no, listen I'm to that. Hundred <laughs> percent. Something about drum kits that are just. I guess it's the full frequency. It's like you've got your really deep bass drums. You've got your, you know, you got that crack of a snare drum. You've got your mm-hmm. the detail of your cymbals and overheads, and it's just there's just everything's there. Actually, my probably my second favorite thing to record is pianos. I love recording pianos. Mm-hmm. It's a similar thing. It's a very full frequency. You know, all the way down to the all the way to the top. There's everything's there. So so it's real. It's a challenge to record it well, uh, but when you do, it's kind of like a bit yeah. exciting. Yep, absolutely. 
Uh, and one of your more recent projects um, has an excellent um, drummer. Yeah, so Casey Beverney. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right. Yeah, that, yeah. So that's 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 one of those moments where I'm mm. like, let's work with a real drummer. Yep. <laughs> so Julia Bebenek, uh, uh plays it. She's a jazz trained, mm. you know, uh, drummer from uh, who I met. I, I work at Melbourne Polytechnic, and she was doing a Bachelor of Music. I saw her perform at one of the concerts with Adam Starr, and uh, I was really. His music was is very complex and difficult, and lots of changing time signatures and. I was just watching it and going, wow, like, she's so relaxed and just this doesn't bother her <laughs> how easy this is for her. And I just, I uh, I, I really was attracted. I hate those kind of people. <laughs> I, was, I was attracted. I was, yeah, well, it's kind of like, I was like, if I was having to play that music, I just was thinking to myself, it'd be, I'd find it quite stressful. Yeah. Uh, and I'd, I don't think I'd be, like, smiling and, like, kind of loosey-goosey the way she was. She was just yeah. so relaxed and, but also nailing everything, you know. And I just, I just, I, I, so I, I just said, to her after the performance like do you want to and she knew my music which was cool and uh we uh we started improvising uh just recording to begin with i didn't know what it was going to be i just was playing heaps of different instruments and then mm -hmm. eventually i was playing learning double bass at the time um and i started playing the double bass uh we did a track with double bass and i ended up overdubbing piano on it and that was the about the 10th thing we recorded and that, but it was a little bit of a it went for about 15 minutes and it was mm -hmm. like Oh, this is really cool. Um, and that was the became the, the first piece from the Casey Bebenex series. So it was basically uh, over a, the goal, uh, which we've achieved now in 2019, was to release a track every month. Um, and so we recorded that in, I think, November, December. And then I was like, all right, that's the first one. We're going to build mm. it from that. And that sort of the language evolved from that piece. And it became a project that, that was really built around the perform uh, uh, a improvised performance between double bass and drums, and then I would uh, do some I'd do multi tracking in post. So, but I'd keep it pretty minimal. It wasn't like adding fifteen things. It was more yeah. like adding effects and adding. It was very drone based, very uh, stark and minimalistic, and uh, it was a it was a massive uh, project. Like doing a one a month. Um, uh, releasing something every month. We're doing. We did like. I think we ended up doing four sessions, um, and to get all twelve pieces. Um, mm. and, but to actually mix them and, and master them, and mastering them, I was doing yeah. all of it myself, and then getting them out on the platforms. And I was also. I also was doing all the artwork for them. So, wow. Wow. Uh, I was. I was really hammering to get those done. But uh, my. Uh, my level as a recording engineer and producer lifted in that time. So when you're doing your own, when I'm recording other people, I, uh, I tend to work in uh, areas that I'm, uh, I know I'm going to get good results with, mm. right? Yep. But when I'm doing my own projects, I try things out and I, and I waste time, yeah. so to speak. 100%. Yeah. Um, and I, I learned a whole heap of new things, you know, where um, in, especially in regards to capturing live performance and, how to you know how do we, how do you embrace the spill in a way you know mm. when you're doing it like what's the best positions and the you know where does it sound crap where doesn't it sound crap and literally moving you know uh, drum like I remember having the drum kit on a uh, on a rug and uh, I didn't have the treatment up so I was just able to literally slide the rug to different areas <laughs> to move the whole drum kit you know just little things like that and and just getting a sense of you know where where, where things were sort of going to work because I wanted the uh, a double bass as well as an acoustic instrument which doesn't have a anywhere near as much volume as a drum kit so I mm. couldn't be super close to it but I started learning about where I could be and where it would work and 
yeah, it was a, a, a lot of learning. Um, and then eventually, you know, learning a little bit about um, referencing as well. So um, usually the traditional thing is we, we, we either play live and have amps in the room or we use headphones. But one of the things I did in that project uh, later in the piece, which worked really well, was I started using active monitors instead of headphones um, okay. and, uh, and placing them uh, in the nulls of, uh, of uh, the microphones um, and, letting the, and allowing the drummer to hear my playing, double bass playing, uh, through a monitor um, and I didn't really care about a little bit of double bass getting in the drum mics it was more like not wanting the drum mics to get into the double bass was mm. the more the problem so just things like that where I'm like I would never have done that but she wanted uh, uh, she I wanted to give her a more more of a sense of a live experience rather than the headphone experience mm. and yeah. with drums and headphones it's interesting because you you uh drops the level, uh, the volume, down mm. significantly, which is good. You need it to. But with the Casey Bebenek, the dynamic, I never wanted, we never really wanted the drums to be slamming. It wasn't a pop thing. It was more of an exploratory sort of jazz ambient thing. So it was more about playing with the levels in the room. You know? yeah, and, the uh, and if you, and if you don't have, you've got headphones yeah. on, it's yeah. much harder to do that. Yeah. And I noticed when uh, uh, we played without headphones, she was much more expressive with her dynamics. And I was like, mm. let's try it without headphones for this session. And then I think that was the second session, uh, the first session we did with uh, headphones. Second session we did with uh, like that way and then we did it that way the rest of the time because it was uh, she was so much freer, you know, mm. in her playing. So that was that was a really... They're the types of things you learn just through, you know, doing things yourself rather... I probably wouldn't have learned any of that if I was working with other people, you know what I mean? Yeah, like it's Because yeah. uh, I would have been like, what's the, the best way to do this? What's the most efficient way to do this? Mm. I don't want to waste any time. I, um, they're also paying me by the hour. I don't want yeah. to... I, I'm, I'm very conscious of keeping the costs reasonable, you know, all that sort mm. of stuff. So... You know, it's yeah, and a very, very similar experience um, with myself. So the projects that I um, I play with myself now, just for my own enjoyment, um, generally we jam for like ten to fifteen minutes, yeah. and then we'll find something in there that yeah. we think is like a decent song. Yeah, but it's it's almost the other end of the spectrum. It's like here's a song. Let's get this part down. Let's get this part down. Let's yep. slam it out. Let's produce it. It's just like, well, I want to find those moments that are really inspirational. Yeah, and, no, absolutely. Um, yeah. No, no. See, well, so with the Casey Bebenek stuff, and this is something I have done in the past, is um, capturing uh, uh, improvise. The thing I love about recording improvisations is you don't have to keep them all, <laughs> and you don't have to keep all of it either. So some of those Casey Bebenek pieces were edited down. Well, although King um, Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard would disagree with you. I think yeah, yeah, they've released sure. everything they've ever yeah, yeah. recorded. I'm not, I'm not, I, I, I get that, and I, uh, but at the same time with a band like that I like I really love some of what they do and some yeah. of the some of the stuff they do I can't be bothered with you know so and that probably and what you just said then makes makes me realize that makes a lot of sense you know but I I uh for me it's really about yeah so with that, that Casey Beck there was there was sections where I'm like this is just you know we weren't gelling here I'm not mm. I have I, I felt no preciousness around that I was just like no we just it really stopped gelling here and it started gelling again here. Let's just edit it out and then we've got to find a way to make it, uh, to re uh, join them up. And there was always a way. And, and that's a strange, like, personal development as well, isn't it? Because when you're first doing a recording, I can remember, you know, doing vocals and them being terrible and them being to tape and yeah. just devastated and, like, I'm never and going anywhere. Yeah. My career's over. Um, <laughs> vocals and, are hard. And, and these days um, I'll just say to the other guys in the band, that sounded crap. I'm going to redo it another day. Yeah, 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 exactly. And, yeah. and I don't think I'm crap. Yeah. I just think you just need to spend some time. Yeah, yeah, you need to spend some time. You know, as a, we have the the luxury as well of being able to, you know, spend 
more, yeah. t- more time on yeah. these sort of things. So I'm the same with vocals as well. Like, you know, like you've got to, if you're doing something with it, that's a uh, song based work with, uh, with lyrics, you know, that that's always going to be the centerpiece and it's so important that everything's right. And it's, uh, you know, I've spent same sort of thing as you when I'm doing a vocal, I'll sometimes, you know, just keep cracking at it over weeks, you know, mm, yeah. just in those spare times between clients, you're like, all right, tonight, you know, no one's in tonight. I'm, I might have another crack yeah. at that. And, you know, eventually, and, and for me, and it's probably similar for you, for me, it's about finding a comfort with it. It's a, it's like this moment, the click always happens when you're sort of like, uh, and it's, and, and uh, it's, there's no self-consciousness anymore. And you're just mm. like, you're just, you find that moment where you're like, okay, I'm singing the song now. I'm engaging yeah. with the words and then something, sort of resonant and cyclical and, and, you know, just beautiful happens inside your body where you start feeling that flow, flowingness and you're like, you kind of know, you're like, all right, I'm, yeah. I'm, the pocket's there, I'm kind of finding this now and you and you find your confidence and then suddenly the vocal starts working. Yeah. But it's, it's, it's uh, especially when you're, and it's also because we're, you know, writing, it's new, it's new music and we've got to learn mm. what it, we might not fully have it fleshed out in terms of the vision yet you know and what it, what it's gonna you know what the delivery is like so and, and i think for artists like ourselves um once again it's almost like moving past that point of ego to being mm. a tool of delivery for the idea yeah 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 no, uh, absolutely and and i always find uh, i'm lucky to have worked with other musicians that have a similar approach to music yeah um and everyone can be in that space together and not take life seriously, but take creating yeah, yeah. something together. Because I think if egos butt too much, you can be a great guitarist or you know, a great player or whatever, Yeah, but it doesn't mean you can draw someone into a moment that is going to move them past the, their sense of self. No, no, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, no, no, for sure. Look, I, th- I think, you know, like when the... It's a funny thing, ego and music, because sometimes I love ego and music mm. as well. Like, it's a weird, you know, like I love, I mean, Mick, I love Mick Jagger, you know, all, like... All hip-hop ever. <laughs> but someone like Mick so. Jagger, you watch, look at the way he performs on stage and the way that he moves and the way that, you know, the way he sort of engages with the audience. It's ego maniac. Yeah. Like, it's just... <laughs> and I'm so glad that he's doing that. It'd be so boring, you know, yeah. uh, if he wasn't, you know, just like this, this alter ego that's just going bananas you know like bowie was the same like Mm. a lot of these big greats were you know like nina simone my god like the ego on her was ridiculous um uh and i don't i i'm I'm, so i can celebrate that in a way especially because it's a uh, it's an ego but there's also a um a confidence in in what they're uh, Mm. expressing in there and there's almost a, a powerful ability to sort of arrive arrive at something that you know that they're determined to get to but then there's the other side of it you're right where uh, and it's a much more functional side of <laughs> of uh, creating where you're sort of like stepping out of the way, you know, and mm. uh, generally, you know, these big egos we're talking about generally don't work in music, but they occasionally <laughs> do, you know, like this is what, I guess is what I'm saying, you know, mm. like we're, it's a strange thing. There's a certain person, you know, that where you're like, okay, no, you can just be the ego because you, <laughs> you but, uh, but there's a lot of time, mostly you don't want to work with people like that. You want to, mm. you want to sort of step out of the way and as a producer, you know, as, as, as we've sort of been talking about, it's really about arriving at a vision and, the vision doesn't really have anything to do with you know us in some ways. It's just something that it's about arriving at what mm. the songs needs to be or what the piece of music needs to be. So it's a uh, it's an interesting yeah interesting area though. So in all of this time of recording, what do you think would have been your most desperate moment of innovation to make something work? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, you know, you mentioned it's good because I thought to myself, uh, you, you were asking about that first Boy Who Spoke Clouds album. I never quite got to it, um, which was, the, you know, where we had a, I had an old Sony Handycam 
uh, with a little condenser microphone in it. And I just remember uh, videoing things and being the, you know, the audio fanatic. I was like, I wonder what, you know, I, I had a headphone in. I'm like, I wonder if I can listen to it while I'm filming things and became quite fascinated with... Uh, uh, and this is before I'd been really re- knew how to record things. I just became fascinated with uh, what I now would know is the proximity effect, where I'm like, as I'm as I'm getting closer to things, like they're becoming clearer and crisper, and and, mm. and I'm, I didn't know at the time, but less room sound and more anechoic response, the actual sound, uh, and then moving away. And it was quite it was a decent condenser microphone in there, mm. you know. And back then as well, it was like you know a condenser microphone was a very expensive thing and a, quite an esoteric thing. And they, they had one inside this little Hi8 Sony camera, so it wasn't bad, you know. It was it it, it, uh, it also compressed all by itself. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how they work to be honest but it's some sort of inbuilt compression Mm. in there that's sort of an algorithm that so it never really uh uh, couldn't clip um but you could certainly get too close with your guitar so i was was sitting in front of acoustic guitars and slamming through (laughs) things and it just it'd have this really like you know slappy sort of like intense you know compression if you got too close to Mm. it and but i uh that 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 at that time um i was so i was doing seascapes of the interior still and i'd been doing it for a while and i wanted um there was a large band, eight-piece band, and mm. I, uh, uh, and it was my main sort of uh, band for a long time, for about a decade, and I just didn't know who I was outside of it, and I didn't know what I could do outside of it. Didn't even know where my voice was really inside of it. It became kind of lost in this democracy of playing in a big band, mm. um, and so I wanted, I, I just wanted to figure that out. It's like, what, what do I? And 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 also, it was quite a serious band, Seascapes of the Interior, and. Uh, with the boys spoke clouds, I wanted to try some absurd, stupid things, you know. Like so, I started, you know, like like putting in clapping, like really conv- convoluted clapping tracks and and uh, clicking and and vocal percussion, and I was doing all this wild stuff. But it ended up becoming quite, you know, I, I, at at the time I remember calling it like a shamanic sort of folk record. Like it was, uh, it's because it had this uh, almost. Um, chanting sort of shamanic, uh, but kind of uh, guttural and. Uh, uh, sort of approach, and and I was really influenced by gypsy music as well at the time, like the Romanian gypsy music of uh, from the Tony Gatliff films and stuff like that. Was I was fascinated with, so I was bringing all that in, and that's that's all stuff I would never would have brought into Seascapes at the mm, time. So, yeah. um, I, uh, I I I started playing with uh, Cool Edit. Uh, uh, had a crappy uh, sound card that was pretty useless. Um, that just had a line in, so I could run the. The, uh, the Sound Blaster Pro. It was, I think, uh, I think it's listed on the uh, on the release page of it, which is on Bandcamp. There is a boy. I think it is something like that. It is. It was a. It was the generic, you know, like cheap computer. I think the computer cost two hundred or three hundred dollars or something. And I ran the line out from the camera straight into the computer, and that was, and that's how I recorded things. So, but the interesting thing was, I was, I was quite, I was getting pretty clever with sampling. So. Uh, most of the instrument there's 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 big drum sounds piano sounds string sounds like it's people hear that record and they're like it sounds like i had a budget but it's uh <laughs> i was just sampling stuff i was just stealing little snippets of music and like like i'm getting a note and then transposing it using using um pitch mm. adjustments and you know creating literally creating string parts through just sampling yep. strings you know on, on records where looking always look on the lookout for oh they're playing a really long note in that part you know like that's useful i'll be able to grab that as a sample and so i started just making samples really myself and uh, that that record the thing that i recorded was the acoustic guitar which was the basics basis of the song um and my voice were really the only things that i recorded Mm. and everything else was sampled Um, so um it's 
And I was, you know, making loops out of the samples and, you know, I wasn't using, I wasn't recording to a click uh, then. I was just like making the loops and the loops would be the uh, the click, you know. Um, cool edit as well. And something that I miss actually in a lot of doors is that when you make loops, they kind of like uh, want to turn it into a groove loop that's connected to the metronome. But Cool Edit just let you doesn't matter what the length of it was, it just turns it into a perfect loop. No doors really do that. <laughs> Where yeah, you just like, yeah. turn, like they want to lock you into the grid. And I'm like, mm. I really like that freeformness of uh, being able to just create my own tempos. I kind of miss that. And I, I still do a little bit of that, but I have to in, indoors, but you have to do it uh, in a in a different way. Like you got to get more manual and, and uh, you have to, mm. to make it not in time with things is quite hard, yeah. you know. It's uh, uh, I do a fair bit of work in, uh, trying to disrupt that sometimes, you know, with certain things that I'm doing. But it's, so I had this, yeah, I, I, that's kind of how it came about and that got brought out, a, a label released it and mm. uh, Sun Sea Sky, they're an Illinois label and they ended up helping me with my first tour, which was that uh, right. tour that you helped Brilliant. me with. That was uh, that was um, facilitated uh, by uh, Sunsea Skiles on their label. Um, and um, I ended up putting uh, getting a, two New York musicians uh, who joined the band, um, Joe and Sarah, uh, played drums and bass. And we just I just went over there and I sent them all the music uh, that we were going to learn uh, pr uh, about six weeks before I went over there, and they learnt, diligently learnt it. And... Uh, Nothing more special than rocking up into a, a uh, into a, a new country, going into a rehearsal room, meeting people for the first time, and then playing, and then they know how to play your music. Yeah, it was amazing. A, it was yeah. wild. I remember <laughs> just looking, and like literally having like tears, like mm. being like, "Oh my god, what's going on?" Like just this strange feeling of like we're playing this music that I've written and for the first time and they just know how to do it. And it was just that, mm. it was like skipping all the steps of figuring things out. And I'd never done that before. I'd always like spent weeks and weeks in rehearsal studios and stuff and getting to know people and fumbling your way to your yep. arrival at a song. But this was just like, bang. <laughs> it was just the, the songs were pretty much like, we didn't need, we, I think we did like four rehearsals and then we were on tour, you know, um, playing them. And it was, it was amazing. It was an amazing experience. And uh, yeah, the label, uh, Sean, who ran the label, he still runs the label to this day. Um, he came out and visited us on tour and helped us out a little bit. And we got, mm. uh, we got, he helped us out, out with uh, getting our posters up in different cities and stuff like that. And uh, it was, it was great. We again, uh, an era where CDs were, were. This is where things have really changed. So back mm. then, we had, um, I, I sold 130 CDs that tour. Yep. Over, over, and that was over 13 shows. So it's really 10 CDs a show, which yeah. doesn't sound yeah. like that much, but. And it probably wasn't compared to, you know, a lot of other artists that were sort of getting around. But for me at that time, I was kind of like, you know, I'm, I wasn't like, you know, overwhelmed with it. I was just like, oh, yeah, cool. That seems about right. Yeah. Whereas now, yeah. if you sold 130 bits of merch on a tour, like you'd be like overjoyed. Like it's because yeah. uh, people that, just don't buy merch anymore. <laughs> yeah. and, and that's the thing I, I've explained to a few people that uh, like my last tour, um, so it was uh, 11, 12 shows through Canada um i'm like i'm obviously a small time indie artist yeah same as me um yep. <laughs> on on spotify i think the the album had something like you know ten thousand streams or something yeah um which you from spotify that equates to about 60 bucks yeah yeah yeah. <laughs> and so what you sell three cds four cds yeah exactly um so i literally made more on selling cds on the last yeah, year yeah, yeah. Than I did from streaming yeah yeah the, uh, the, we were selling the cds back then you know they were i think they were like uh 20 bucks for yeah. a cd you know and we'll so and we're also selling we had t-shirts as well and we we're selling and we sold plenty of t-shirts as well so 
kind of uh, came out the other side of that one, not too, you know, not, not too yeah. bad. It was, uh, it, it's, it's, it's just saying, so, you know, I've, I've toured since. I remember the first tour where I realised people weren't buying merch was uh, 2014. Um, mm-hmm. I, I toured Europe, um, went to Holland, um, and was part of a festival called Fading Trails, and uh, I had CDs with me. And I uh, was playing r- bigger shows, more people uh, at the shows, um, playing with um, very well, some pretty well-known artists like his Golden Messenger um, and Steve Gunn and uh, like people that are, you know have established fan bases and all that sort of stuff. I was, I, it was a really good tour. No one, I think I sold less than five CDs mm-hmm. over the whole time, you know. But uh, so it was just a different thing you know yeah, it's uh, yeah. uh people and that was that moment where i'm like what's happened like uh and now you know we know yeah, <laughs> streaming's taken over and cds are, aren't a thing and uh, people are trying to bring vinyl out and that's uh, what a lot of people don't realize is that is extremely expensive thing to do yeah, yeah. um and so I, I i love vinyl i collect vinyl but i still haven't and i've released lots of vinyl uh as a musician on other people's records and I've uh, produced, a, I, I mastered to vinyl and a lot of my clients go to vinyl, but I still haven't released anything on vinyl myself because yeah, I'm just like, good. why am I going to spend three to $5,000 on uh on on a, and on having boxes of records under my bed, you know, like I probably, you know, I don't know how many. I probably, I'm sure I'd sell some, but you know, you kind of at a minimum usually of 250 copies of them. Yeah, uh, that's right. And it's you've got to have people buy that many mm. records, and you, and if you're not touring, and I'm like now these days, I'm I'm not doing that. I'm more of a recording in terms of my own music and you know, I'm more I call myself more of a recording artist that will occasionally mm. do a show here or there, you know. So it's a it's just a different world now. Um, I mean, we've covered a lot today, and I'm sure that we could um, talk for a lot longer. Um, but are there important things that have stuck with you from all of this combined experience over the years? Things that keep you going, or mm. moments that have you know, been sort of the life raft in the middle of the yeah, yeah. Well, sometimes it's, sometimes it's the opposite, where you're like, "Why am I doing this?" You yeah, know, <laughs> that's, that's probably the more common like uh, thing that prevails, where you're sort of like. Not sure why I'm doing this. Uh, it's it's uh, and I think most musicians and you know anybody involved in uh, the arts, you know, you go through those sort of hard phases where you're like, I, I, it's why are we doing this? Um, uh, and we need they, at, at, at the end of the day though, that's the in the the uh, I guess the um, the inverse of that is the reason we're doing it is because we're contributing to a culture, mm. we're contributing to a community. Where uh, it's about the impact and the contribution that we feel that we're making, and if we uh, as artists, don't feel any of that coming back. Um, there's a there's an imbalance, you know, and uh, an equilibrium isn't there. And so I think as artists, we quite often, when we feel bereft, it's because we're, we've lost our contact with community, with culture, yeah. and uh, and what we're contributing to. And it's uh, sometimes, you know, sometimes when you're playing a show in front of five people, you're like, what am I contributing to? You know, it's uh, yeah. It doesn't feel, you know, uh, like I'm contributing to much right now, but it's, you know, the, the thing that I've learned as well over the years is that sometimes you play a show like that and you'll have one person come up to you and just be like, oh, my God, like that was, you know, really important sort of moment yeah, for me. And yeah. you've got to really take it seriously, you know. And I've mm. I've been, you know, blessed to have people travel and 
go to great lengths to see me perform. So I've I've kind of had that feeling, but I've also played in front of you know almost nobody before as mm. well. I've had all those experiences. I always remember having a, when I played in Holland, I didn't sell any CDs, but I had a guy. I played a show in Rotterdam, and a guy travelled from Italy oh to see God. me. Uh, <laughs> you know, and I just couldn't believe it. I felt actually embarrassed. I was like, you shouldn't have done that. Like, <laughs> <laughs> why'd you do that? That's a lot of money. Like, that's not mm. you know. And I remember, uh, and, and he bought every piece of merch. I think that was the only merch I sold. He bought. I had three CDs and a T-shirt, and he bought all of it. You know. Yeah. Uh, um, and it was just, you know, there are moments like that where you're like, wow, like that's that's mm. just, uh, that's very uh, validating um, because, you know, something about what I'm doing, you know, uh, spoke to him in such a powerful yeah. way that he was like, money became no object for a moment, you know, and uh, that's that's an exciting moment. But it's more, it's more like um, they're little, you know, sort of individual moments. I think the, the greater good more happens when you're sort of... Uh, getting involved with other people, you know, like I, I like, that's kind of why I've got into producing is I like, I like working with, you know, like, like when I'm working in a, doing a sound design for theatre, for example, that's one of my favourite things to do because I'll be working with a team of, you know, 20, 30, maybe even 10 or 15 if it's smaller, but you're working with a, a group of people who are all working towards something and an expression of something and you come out the other end, you know, uh, performing it and it's, there's something just spirit filling, you know, about mm, that, uh, yeah. working with other people when you get, uh, and I'm somebody that gets, you know, because uh, I can do so much just like you, I, I can, you know, I've made lots of records where no one else is involved as well <laughs> and I'm just doing everything myself. And I love doing that. At a time when I was younger, it was really important because I needed to know what my voice sounds like. I, I know how to express myself now. I know what I, I, know what, what I bring. And mm. if I'm working with somebody, I'll hear my voice. You know, I'm like, yep, there I am. That's me for sure. Yep. You know, whereas when I was younger, I wouldn't have had a clue. I would have been like, did I play that part? Like, you know <laughs> what I mean? So, you know, it's a, initially it was about self-expression. Now I'm at a stage of my life. I'm in my 40s now. I've done, I've brought out lots of records of my own and other people I've toured the world a bunch of times I've done a lot of this stuff and I'm now I'm it's more about it's less about me and it's uh it's more about you know what what uh my connection with other people and, mm. and working and being part of a community and being part of you know like being kind of that true vine thing I was talking yeah, about before yeah. it's that yep. that just being uh and it's it's easy to you know I lose track and I I get you know down sometimes and then you know, I think the thing that brings me back up is when I have, you know, a bunch of people come back into the studio and we start working on something and you forget about everything yeah. that's going on in the world and you just like start working. And uh, that's, to me, the most um, natural place is when I'm working on a record, uh, especially when, you know, an artist comes in and wants to do the whole thing, you know, in the studio and you're kind of from scratch building something. Mm. There's nothing more gratifying, I don't mm. think, and, uh, than working on a record from scratch, which doesn't, it's unfortunately becoming more and more rare now because people are wanting to do more at home and do little bits that are, you know, I spend more and more time in the studio now doing, you know, sections of things. Yeah. Uh, um, doing a, just a vocal recording or doing just a drum recording or sometimes they've recorded already and bringing everything in to mix it. And, you know, it's a different experience, a little bit less... Um, congruent and uh, connective um, when you're doing it that way but it's, it's definitely a sense of going on an adventure with an artist when you do yeah. the whole thing together yeah, yeah yeah no absolutely and it's sort of uh, I also I would argue and this is not me like you know trying to sell my studio <laughs> but I would argue that um, the record will sound probably more cohesive as well yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, when you're doing it with one person and it's but also it's a more cohesive experience so your memory of making it mm. gets it's holed up in this one sort of thing it's not like spread out across 15 different places that you've done it you know like it's 
and so and on a on a mnemonic level you know where we're thinking about our memories and that's you know like that's a big part of making music you know like when you i i in fact when people say what were you doing in you know 2009 and what were you doing i i think about it in relation to what record had i made at that time yeah, you know like yep. you know yeah, absolutely and like, you know and then I, and, and once i know i'm like oh yeah i know where i was yeah like, i know they're, they're my signposts you know, so if I don't make a record for a few years, it's a bit of a scary thing, actually, because I'm like, I'm going to lose, you know, where I was in time if I haven't made a record for a few actually years. Actually, have to keep a diary. <laughs> um, well, Adam, thanks so much for coming in today. No worries. Um, I, I definitely think you should come back in again because I think there's lots more that we can tease out to talk about. Um, well, maybe I've got to interview you. <laughs> <laughs> um but so give us all your pluggables. So obviously the, the True Vine studio here yeah, in Melbourne. Yeah, sure. Yeah, so the, the main things, uh, I can give you through, I'll send you through the, the links as well. But um, yeah, the True Vine, so the True Vines, uh, we've got a Facebook and an Instagram page, True Vine Productions. Um, Liminal Music Society is what I'm doing with music now. So that's um, the reason why I've started that uh, is because I have lots of different projects uh, and I, uh, and I, I went from the boy who spoke clouds uh, into I'm like I want to do this I want to do this I want to, and I started splitting things up and so I have a, a music project called Photosphere I have a, a music project called the Liminal Choir I have a music project just under my own name Adam Casey at the moment so there's three things so I'm like how do I do this <laughs> so I created this this sort of uh, you know it's sort of like a platform mm -hmm. you know to show but I also am using it to, as a way to present all the archived stuff that I've done over the years as well like a kind mm -hmm. of a repository of music because I. I've had seascapes like you know and Casey Bebenek and mm. the Boys Spoke Clouds and I've also been part of other bands like Bruder Dillamon and Trappist Afterland and all this other stuff. So it's kind of um, so Liminal Music Society now is kind of the the uh, the band that's yep. the Bandcamp page um, which has everything and I've also got a AdamCasey.com.au portfolio website that puts all of the sound design, the theatre stuff, uh, the and my academic work and the music work. It's all in one place as well. So that's a uh, that's, if you if you go one place to learn more about me, it'd be adamcasey.com.au and that sends you out to all the other, sends you to the studio page, sends you to the, the Instagram and Facebook and all that sort of stuff. Terrific. Well, thanks again, Adam. Um, uh, that's all for today. And remember, everyone, there is magic in the mystery of not quite knowing what you're doing. <laughs> awesome. Q Playback.